0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today on the program is Jen Chaplin, author of My Autobiography of Carson McCullers. Jen, thanks so much for being on the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I want to start out by congratulating you not only on writing a, a, such a wonderful book, but I've, I've seen the book on a lot of year-end best-of lists and that sort of thing. So congratulations. It seems like it's really finding a, an audience.
1: Yeah, I hope so. It's been such a strange year to publish a book in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, so it is nice to see it kind of getting some love on the lists this time of year, for sure.
0: Now, I, I, I'm i not sure if this is a delicate question to ask or not, but w- were you surprised at that at all? I mean, Carson McCullers isn't the most well-known writer in the world, though she definitely has her fans, myself, among them.
1: You know, I am surprised um, in part. I mean, this is my first book, and I think of it as sort of an experimental memoir biography uh, Mm -hmm. about an author that, as you said, not that many people are familiar with. Um, You know, there are definitely writers who know McCullers' work, uh, academics who've studied her in depth. But just, you know, when you encounter people day to day, if if I mention the name of my book, most of the time they don't know who Carson McCullers is. So yeah, it's been super exciting to me to, um, to see the book uh, circulate in the world uh, and find its audience among people of kind of differing age groups, and different backgrounds. Um, I think I was most surprised that it was shortlisted for the National Book Award. That seemed like a very sort of like mainstream uh, prize for it to be up for. And that was kind of like a huge surprise yeah. to me. Um, but of course, really exciting, too. And I hope what it means is that more people out there are finding McCullough's work.
0: No, I mean, so it's interesting that you say that not many people who you talk to about the book have have heard of Carson McCullers or who can identify her works because she was quite well known in her time. I mean, Tennessee Williams compared her favorably to Faulkner. Richard Wright said she wrote better black characters than any other white writer. I mean, it's not like she was obscure in her time, but you feel like, I mean, is it just as simple as she was a woman writer and women writers aren't as well remembered as male writers?
1: I think that was certainly part of it. Um... She died fairly young, so her output wasn't huge. Um, But then I think maybe the biggest reason has to do with how difficult it was for um, kind of the literary establishment to claim her as a Southern writer um, Mm. and for the South and for Georgia to claim her that way. So other writers uh, like Flannery O'Connor, for example are anthologized and taught um, and kind of beloved uh, still to this day and and much more well-known because I think that it was easier for Planner O'Connor's work and her life to be sort of absorbed into that establishment. Carson's life uh, as I write about is the life of a queer person kind of seeking her community um, and kind of leaving the South behind for a very different life and lifestyle uh, and her work deals with themes that are, uh, while super relevant today, a little bit uh, more dicey politically, let's say, than some of what uh, other Southern writers in her sort of generation, specifically other women Southern writers, were addressing. Um, the way that she writes specifically about race relations in the South, South uh, and the way that she writes about queer desire and queer relationships um, some of that, you know, could come across as radical even today. All of it to me seems really relevant. Um, and so I think that some of what she was writing about kind of you know mixed race relationships and uh, queer relationships, I, I think that a lot of that just kind of put her out of the running for being sort of totally embraced uh, by by critics and writers as a southern writer. So she's yeah, but she is beloved in her time. Um, I don't know, I think, sorry, this is a bit of a long answer, but I think uh, some of what I write about in terms of, of lesbian erasure and invisibility in terms of the way Carson's own sexuality was erased uh, after her death, I think some of that has to do with it too. It's like she lived a certain way and was a part of a certain community during her lifetime. And then after the fact, uh, all of that sort of was shut down and her legacy uh shifted or, or there was an attempt to shift her legacy into something a little bit more palatable or easy to absorb by some perceived literary public. So I don't know, I think all of all of those things work together to sort of erase her a bit.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I love about your book is I feel like, you know, when McCulloch was remembered, she's often remembered as sort of like uh, a, a tragic case, you know, sure. as somebody who who lived this very difficult life and had, you know, was married twice to this horrible man and had problems with alcohol and had problems with her health. And, you know, her life definitely seems sad if you forget the fact that she was a lesbian and like had happy relationships with women, uh, you know, especially towards the end of her life with uh, Mary Mercer, who we'll talk about, I'm sure we'll talk about a bit later. But I mean, is, is that kind of one of the one of the reasons you wanted to write this book is to sort of say, no, her life wasn't all tragic. It's just only tragic if you look at the straight parts of her life.
1: I think so. Yeah, I, I think that the sort of like joy of her her spirit and her approach to her life, despite all of the tragedy that she experienced, um, is something that's really amazing, but that is not captured very well. Uh, in the sort of capsule biography of her, uh, or if you just kind of read through quickly the facts of her life and what happened, um, y- y- you might get the uh, idea that she was just sort of a miserable person, but that mm-hmm. so is not the way it plays out when you read interviews with people who knew her. Um, when you read anything about her, when you read her um her letters in particular, you really see this person who was so vibrant. She was hilarious. She was really funny. And that really comes through in her fiction as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you lose a huge part of her personality if you, if you tell her life story that way. Um, And that also kind of uh, doesn't really square with the fiction itself um, or with any of her writing, which again has, you know, deals with darker themes uh, is really vibrant and uh, funny and joyous at times as well. So I think there's just a much more complicated um, picture that that emerges of her uh, when you look a little bit more closely.
0: And even the idea of her as a Southern writer, I mean, she definitely doesn't seem in obvious ways to fit into the tradition that sort of goes from, you know, the agrarians to Faulkner to uh, O'Connor. But she does fit into a sort of queer Southern tradition that, I mean, mostly her contemporaries, Truman Capote and Tennessee Williams. Mm -hmm. So is that kind of, I noticed that as a sort of thread in your book as well, not just looking at her queer life, but looking at her as a member of these various queer communities.
1: Yeah, well, she definitely was really close friends with Tennessee Williams and they wrote together and worked together. And Capote, she kind of helped launch his career by introducing him to his editor or agent. I can't remember. But uh, then ultimately they um, parted ways and really uh, grew to despise each other. Um, But there's definitely a way when you kind of look back at those communities that the Southern queer writers kind of were, if not on the same team, they were all sort of in conversation with one another Um, and then there was a a much different version of the Southern writer that was the straight Southern writer and those groups clashed. I mean, at Yaddo, I write about this. There was this kind of big ordeal that happened, um, involving Robert Lowell. Um, but Flannery O'Connor was one of the people who was kind of trying to bring down the director of Yaddo, the writer's residency, um, for basically for her queer identity um, during the Red Scare, during the Lavender Scare, and it was a, a number of queer Southern writers who kind of came uh, out of the woodwork to speak on her behalf. So I, I think there's kind of a lot of undertones of sort of homophobia that work against those mm-hmm. writers, but then there's a lot of uh, community that's that works in their favor uh, during their lifetimes especially.
0: Yeah, I love Flannery O'Connor, but she really had terrible political views. She
1: really I mean, did. More of that comes out as time yeah. goes on. There was a, an article about her her letters and her journals and the, her mm-hmm. use of the N-word. And ugh, it's not good. <laughs> it's really good.
0: I remember there's a quote where she's talking about the Freedom Writers, And she says, it seems like a hell of a long way to go to get shot. And it's oh. like, ugh. Jesus. That's awful. No. That's really bad. And that's one of the things. I mean, you know, I guess this is, this maybe seems like kind of an obvious question, but do you feel like McCullough's queerness is related to the fact that, you know, from my perspective as a 21st century leftist, she has pretty good politics and, you know, writes very uh, favorably about characters who are influenced by Marxism in her first book and mm-hmm. uh, refuses to give her papers to the Columbus, Georgia Library because they're segregated. I mean, do you feel like that's related to the fact that she was queer?
1: I think uh, yes and no. So I, I mean, I, Truman
0: Capote had terrible politics, too. So right, right, right.
1: You can definitely a... be queer and not not have a progressive political view and and not not take the actions that she took in her life, right? Like with the public library, I think that's such a good example of kind of who she was, where she just, like, even if someone, you know, wanted to honor her, she didn't want that honor if she didn't agree with um, the way that they understood equality. Um, And yeah, that totally shines through her work. Um, But I think that the queerness intersects uh, with her politics because of who she surrounded herself with, who she... Mm befriended, uh, and what their politics were. At the same time, it was her husband Reeves, uh, who kind of first introduced her to Marxism and to these different political ideas than what she actually had access to growing up, uh, in Columbus. So, you know, it, it's funny though. their marriage is, um, kind of a, a marriage of two queer people. Um, and so there's a way in which her relationship with Reeves also opens, uh, her life, to, uh, certain other kind of queer characters, especially kind of these groups of gay men that she didn't have access to prior to meeting him. Um, but I think it was kind of their relationship, um, that first opened her eyes to what she had recognized as the inequalities of, uh, of growing up in the South, the racism, uh, of Columbus and, then I would say that it wasn't really until later in her life that she understood her own queerness, um, and, and maybe understood that as a political, uh, perspective. Um, so yeah, I don't know how integrated those ideas were for her, but I do think when you look at her writing, it's hard not to see the overlap, um, that, that the characters she writes about, um, who often express or experience queer desire also have these, uh, maybe more Marxist political views, or they have, um, these ideas about equality, about relationships. I mean, I think her last book clock without hands does a great job of, uh, of really showcasing that overlap.
0: Yeah. I'd love to talk about clock without hands in the book. You write that you've never met anybody who's read clock without hands, who you didn't tell to read clock without hands. Well, Jen, I've read Clock Without Hands. That's
1: so wonderful. I'm so glad to hear it. (laughs) I've
0: read almost all of her books. There's a few I haven't gotten to yet, but I have read that one. Um, And for me, one of the things that's really exceptional about that book is that in her earlier work, it seems like she's really focused on these sort of Southern outcast characters. But in that book, she's very empathetic towards characters who are kind of on the inside, the sort of, uh, you know... Fire-breathing reactionaries, but also the kind of the cowards who make bigotry acceptable mm-hmm. uh, by not opposing it. Um, that seems like a really impressive accomplishment, a moral accomplishment as well as an artistic accomplishment. Um, what do you love about that book?
1: Well, one of the things I love is that I was reading it for the first time, kind of in the run-up to the 2016 election. And um, it just it it just felt like it could have been written now. It's written in the '60s, but it feels like uh, it just has so many different overlaps with issues in our own time. And so I think what you point out about how she writes specifically about not just the like ultra-conservative character of the judge in that book. Um, But she also writes about um, those who allow violence to take place by just kind of turning a blind eye, right? Um, I I feel like we saw so much of that, and we continue to see so much of that uh, in the U.S. today, um, even around, let's say, like the George Floyd protests, the way that people have responded to those. I think um, she's writing about a lot of the psychodynamics uh, that allow white supremacy and racism to continue to exist and to continue to kind of like grow and foster new members and, Mm -hmm. uh, and things like that. And so I, I just really admire her ability to, um, to access that, uh, those dynamics and put them on the page in a way that is both funny and kind of heartbreaking, Um, And then the other thing I really love is, is again, her sense of humor. I think the judge is a really funny character. Um, And so she's both taking him and his uh, kind of psychological struggles like really seriously, but she's also making fun of him. Uh, And I just love, I love that combination of things. I think that by bringing those two forces to bear on one character, we have a different kind of empathy for him at the same time that we don't have to like, side with him or agree with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think that's so powerful. So we've talked
0: a bit about Carson McCullers, uh, who is, you know, a lot of the content of your book is about her, but a lot of your your book is also about you and kind of your experience of getting to know Carson McCullers through her work and through her letters and uh, even through uh, her, her therapy transcripts. Yes. Um, could you tell us a bit of the story of how you became interested in Carson McCullers?
1: Sure. Yeah. So I was uh, working as an intern at an archive in Austin, Texas at the Harry Ransom Center, um, which is an archive that houses the papers and manuscripts and books, um, but also the belongings and objects of a bunch of major writers and artists. I was working there while I was a graduate student at UT uh, studying English. Um, And I had never read Carson McCullers, but I came across these letters that were written to her by a woman named Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach. Um, and I came across them just because a scholar had asked about these letters. Uh, and I started reading them and was just totally shocked to learn that they were they were love letters. And they documented a relationship between Carson and Anne-Marie that uh, seemed really passionate and interesting um, and significant. And so then I kind of As I often did in that job in the archive, when I would come across something that seemed juicy, I kind of, you know, ran it down and tried to figure out, you know, what else can I learn about these two women and their relationship? And as I started Googling, I just didn't like the way the relationship was being characterized. It was either Mm -hmm. talked about as like a friendship or it was talked about as... Um, this obsession. I think if you even look on Carson's Wikipedia page now, you'll see like her obsession with Anne Marie Schwarzenbach or something. Um, and that just didn't seem to be uh, borne out by these letters from Anne Marie. It seemed like there was a lot more there. So I just started digging um, and reading the biographies, reading all of Carson's fiction, just trying to understand who she was um, and continued to be frustrated with the parts of the story that seemed to be either left out or sort of written about with these, with this language that was very sort of whitewashed or, or that really took out um, some of the details that I, I was able to glean just from looking at those letters. Um, and so in the process of becoming interested in her, I ended up uh, cataloging her personal effects at the Harry Ransom center, along with the personal effects of a few other Figures like Gertrude Stein, Alice B. Toklas, and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So kind of a weird assortment of, mm-hmm. of folks. And I was cataloging their clothes, their socks, their pajamas, their coats, their lighters, their typewriters, all, all kinds of uh, different uh, personal effects. Um, and so as I kind of got to know those objects uh, I just got sucked in deeper and eventually ended up staying in Carson's house in Columbus and and the book kind of follows um, that research trajectory how I got interested in in Carson and then kind of how I followed her from there on
0: did that process and I'm trying to think of a way to phrase this question but did the process of getting to know her so closely and so intimately through her house, through her clothes. Did that ever feel sort of creepy to you?
1: Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, um, just (laughs) I'm glad you
0: said that (laughs) because you could have very easily been understandably offended by that question.
1: No, not at all offended. I mean, working at the Ransom Center in particular and being like you're in, and I've written about this. I wrote my very first essay was about working there. It's called Finders Keepers and it's kind of about theft in the archive. Um, but Working there, you're in this space that's like both this sort of like funhouse of other people's stuff and ideas and materials, but also this weird tomb, this weird um, mausoleum uh, of all these, you know, dead people's belongings, uh, especially the personal effects. There's something super creepy about them um, and at the same time, super intimate and, and sort of fascinating Um, the same was true for Carson's house where like, as I write about, I didn't even know where I was allowed to sit because most of the furniture in the house belonged to her at some time. Um, and so, you know, in my archival training, I would think like, okay, we must handle these objects with gloves. Um, and at the same time I was living in the house, uh, and it's a, it's a writing residency, uh. And, and lots of people have lived, have lived there, so it was always super unclear, like, how do I relate to these belongings? Um, and, you know, at the same time, too, there's, there's something about old things. There's something about someone's, you know, former stuff. It's like being in kind of a dead grandparent's house or something to a certain extent, like that, that everything's a little bit old and out of date. And uh, sure, that's definitely creepy
0: Play it now with Game Pass. Now, so did you feel like spending that time with that personal material helped you understand her work better?
1: I do, to a certain extent. Yeah, I feel like I I was able to understand her writing process a bit better um, by, you know, getting to know her clothes. So, for example, the nightgowns um, that were in the Ransom Center and then all these coats, how, how she often was writing from bed. Um, and that, that's sort of why the night guns ended up in, uh, in the archive, um, or at least that's sort of my theory. Um, I got to know, yeah, a little bit more about her writing process. And then I got to visualize uh, the time period in her life a little bit better by seeing what it was that she wore. And certainly the clothes were also an avenue to understanding her her queerness and how she presented herself and how she, you know, kind of wanted to look out in the world. I think fashion kind of really gives us uh, a way in to understanding kind of how a person thinks about their gender and their sexuality in the time. And there's not that many things that give us access to that information. Um, So clothes was definitely, you know, one way in.
0: Yeah. How would you describe how she dressed?
1: Well, it's funny Uh, My paperback is coming out in January and the publisher has decided to put Carson's face on the cover. Um, And they are using an an illustration that they found of a photograph that was taken by, um, Oh, I'm just blanking on her name. Her name's Louise um, by a photographer when Carson was pretty young in her twenties. And these photographs of her are, some of the most like feminine photos that I've ever seen of Carson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and of course, like that's the kind of young feminine Carson is, is the one the publisher chose to kind of like lure readers in, I guess. Um, and, and so when she was younger, she kind of uh, went back and forth between sort of wearing dresses and these like little tweedy skirt suits, especially when she was first in New York. Um, and this much more masculine and severe way of dressing, some of which seems like it was inspired by her encounters with people like Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach and Erica Mann, um, Thomas Mann's daughter, who was kind of a power lesbian in New York at the time. Uh, and so her style kind of slowly evolved. And so there was a time when she was in New York, in and out of New York, when she's wearing kind of um, these white shirts with really big cuffs and collars over blazers. Um, and it's a very like almost hammed up masculine style. Um, mm-hmm. There's a really great uh, Harper's Bazaar um, photo spread of her and Tennessee Williams, and the article is called incessant prize winners and they're you know on (laughs) either on facing pages um and she's smoking you know a cigarette and and they're basically wearing the same outfit and Mm -hmm. like clearly that's part of the joke you know that's part of the um the joy of it and then later in her life she kind of shifts again and she's just wearing like these tapestry vests and these coats the, the coats that i cataloged that are um, a bit over the top. So she kind of, she had it like a number of different looks throughout her life.
0: Um, you mentioned a couple of names in that answer. And I'd love to talk about Anne-Marie Schwarzenbach. Um, you, you quote your partner in the book of saying, uh, God, she's such a type about yes. Anne-Marie, yeah. which I thought was great. Um, what, what type would you call Anne-Marie?
1: Oh, she is totally that person who, I mean, that woman who, uh, you know, you're, you think when you're with her that she's totally in love with you and that, you know, everything's going great, but then like within seconds she can be completely cold as ice. Um, that seems to be Anne-Marie's way. She was constantly making women fall in love with her or that's the, that's sort of the way it's narrativized um, by a variety of people who were there at the time um, and kind of, you know, doting on different women and then, a, and then kind of using, uh, their affection as a way to uh, just showcase her own power to a certain extent by kind of pulling that affection away or, or giving it back, and that is such a type. That's a type in relationships among I feel like young people, especially. Mm-hmm. Um, but but yeah, it certainly is a lesbian type. You see it in you see it in movies and TV shows when you do get a lesbian character. Um, there are a lot of Anne Maries out there for sure.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I felt so bad for Carson when you were just narrating those interactions that she had with her. It seems so painful.
1: For sure. So painful, but so common, you know, like yeah. so so normal and so typical, I think, of, of relationships among women, of especially like young relationships. Um, it's just so easy to get into a situation like that, for sure.
0: Um, you also mentioned Tennessee Williams, and I love Tennessee Williams. He's one of my favorite writers. Um, and he comes off really well in your book, which I was glad to read. <laughs> um, and, and he's one of the few people that Carson McCullers describes her illnesses to in detail, which to me seems like a, a really remarkable uh, display of trust. Could you describe their relationship and what it meant to, the, to her, sort of both personally and artistically?
1: Yeah, I mean, they they were ultimately really close and they wrote a lot of letters back and forth. Um, but the story of their meeting is kind of like one of the best uh, little anecdotes, I think, that kind of signifies their friendship to a certain extent, which is that Tennessee reached out to Carson uh, after her first book came out and just said, you know, this book is amazing and I want to know you. And she showed up at his house in Nantucket Uh, it basically just stayed there for the summer, um, and would often return there in the summers and, and they would sit, uh, across from each other at the table and just write all day. Uh, they would work, uh, they would workshop Tennessee's plays. They would read aloud from what Carson was working on. And he kind of helped her as she turned her, uh, several of her novels into plays, adapted them for the stage. Um, and, and she ultimately had a lot of success with that. So I think that their relationship was really fruitful for her work. Uh, and I assume for his as well. I don't think I kind of spent as much time mm-hmm. thinking about how uh, Carson may have impacted Tennessee's work. But I bet if you uh, go back from the date of their meeting, you can probably see the influence of that kind of uh, creative friendship. Um, and then, of course, they also were able to be open with each other about their relationships about being queer. Um, and, uh, that sort of opened a number of doors to Carson as well. Tennessee helped her, uh, find her agent at a, at a point when she needed to replace her agent. Um, so there was also just a degree of sort of professional networking happening that was important, uh, between the two of them. But yeah, she trusted Tennessee. She could tell him what she was experiencing with her illness, what was really going on with Reeves, which not a lot of people knew at the time. Um, and of course, you know, she always went to Tennessee when she was pining over someone, uh, often Anne-Marie at, at the early stages. But uh, later in her life, different women came, came and went, and she often uh, talked about them to Tennessee. So, yeah, they were totally confidants and, and very close friends.
0: And did she meet Tennessee after she had lived at February house or is that before, what was the timeline of that?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I want to say it's uh, around the same time. Uh, yeah. It's possible that she went out to Nantucket before she ended up at February house. I'd have to look back at that.
0: And for our listeners who don't know about February house, I feel like this is, you know, I, I, I read a book about the literary history of Brooklyn and I was so excited to go Visit February House and see it for myself, and then I found out it was demolished it's to make room for there. the BQE. Yeah,
1: <laughs> uh, which
0: is such a tragedy. I mean, it's like the most amazing collection of people: uh, W. H. Auden, Benjamin Britton, Richard Wright, Carson McCullers, Gypsy Rose Lee. I mean, just on and on and on. Um, how did that happen?
1: That happened because of a friendship um, between Carson and the Harper's editor, Harper's Bazaar editor, George Davis. Um they were they were friends. Carson was new to New York and her relationship with Reeves was really on the rocks and he was so controlling. Um and George Davis was broke and basically kind of needed a roommate. And they found this house uh in Brooklyn on Midaw Street, I think that's how you pronounce it, and um decided like, okay, if we if we both live together, you know, in different parts of the house, George Davis was gay, is another kind of note on that. Um, maybe we can bring other writers and other musicians and choreographers and people in and people can come and go, but uh, that way we can all afford to live. But, you know, Carson won't be controlled by Reeves. Uh, she'll have more freedom and and Davis will be able to uh, afford his somewhat lavish lifestyle. Uh, everyone will be able to afford to eat because we'll, you know, hire a cook for us all. Um, so, so that is kind of how the idea was born, almost on a whim. Uh, and it, it worked out beautifully. Um, so yeah, you mentioned a bunch of the different people who lived there at different times. Um, Paul Bowles and Jane Bowles also lived there. Um, and those were some of the friendships that really first, um, solidified Carson's sort of life in New York, her, uh, her community among creative people and certainly her queer community. Um, The house got its name from Anais Nin, who uh, realized that most of the people living in the house had been born in February. Uh, It was like a very uh, jolly and creative and energetic uh, community of Aquarius uh, sun signs, which Mm -hmm. to me as an Aquarius sounds really fun. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I think Richard Wright moved in with his family and then decided maybe this is not the place for me it and my not wife and a children. Family
1: house, yeah. I don't <laughs> think that worked that well. But he ended up um, allowing Carson to stay in his apartment mm-hmm. in Paris a number of times um, because you know they just became really close um, through that experience.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So I mean, you mentioned sort of being somewhat jealous of February House, which I think is a very uh, sensible reaction to reading about it and researching it. Um, How did researching McCullers change your life?
1: Oh, gosh, in so many ways. I mean, at the time when I started, like I said, I was a grad student. I was studying to be a professor, like a literary professor professor of English um, and I am not that. <laughs> I in in the process of doing this research while I was finishing a dissertation on a totally different subject, um, I just started writing uh, I started writing about my work in the archive I started writing about Carson colors and some of my writing started to have some success being published and being, Um, was a finalist for a couple of awards at UT that both came with a a fair amount of money attached to them. And so I kind of got this idea like, well, maybe this writing thing is actually something that feels like more of a fit to me than uh, the academic work that I've been doing. And I think a lot of that was inspired by studying Carson's life, studying the life of this writer um, and understanding kind of how she made that life work understanding the other artists and writers that she was in community with and how rich that environment was, I think it made me want that to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. Um, So at the end of my grad program, after interviewing for some academic jobs that sounded really, really bleak and not getting them, um, my partner and I moved to Santa Fe uh, with the intention of just kind of focusing on writing and trying to create some version of that creative life in, in a place that would allow us to um, to get by on a little bit less um, than what was required in Austin at the time. Austin was kind of going through this huge tech boom, and we were feeling really pushed out. Um, and basically, that's kind of worked. I mean, like ever ever since uh, I have sort of pursued the research into Carson McCullers, wrote the book, got an agent, published her, and have kind of built my life around writing. And I kind of credit all of that with uh, studying Carson and her life.
0: Wow. I mean, that's so interesting to me because in this book, what's very clear is that a part of you loves doing archival research. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So what was it about academia that made you feel like that's not for me after I mean, you completed your PhD, right? Yeah, I did. So you you, you had a, enough of a taste of that life to know it wasn't for you. What about it seemed like not a good fit?
1: Um, I think a big part of it has to do with the style of writing, academic writing, um, which I was capable of doing, but I really couldn't stand. Mm-hmm. Um, and... You know, I, I love, as you mentioned, I love doing archival research. I love research in general, where I'm sitting right now, I'm surrounded <laughs> by books for the research I'm doing right now. Um, and at the same time, I, I felt strongly um, that there was, for me, a different way of writing about that research that made it accessible to more people, that made it accessible beyond sort of the um, walled off parts of the academic institution. Um and I really wanted I wanted people to know this version of Carson McCullers and her life, but I didn't want that to to be something that, you know, was discussed within, you know, a small coterie of people, like the eight people who have read my academic article (laughs) that I published Mm -hmm. or whatever. I really wanted it to be part of a larger conversation. Um at the same time, I really love teaching. Um, and that's something that I miss sometimes. I was adjuncting when I first moved to Santa Fe. Um but again, I think I I am a more natural creative writing professor than I am a, a, a literature professor. Um, I find it easier to talk about the writing process than to sort of pick apart uh, the books uh, that have been published. So, yeah, I think um, there were, you know, and there were a number of like different political things about uh, being in graduate school, being a graduate student at um a big state university, uh, their sort of attitudes toward teaching and funding graduate students and how that was even shifting under our feet, uh, in terms of things like health insurance and, uh, what we were paid, all those things sort of really turned me off, uh, the academy to a large extent. Um, and you know, I've had a lot of luck outside of it. I actually work now as an archivist for an artist in Santa Fe. That's sort of the work that I do that supports my writing. Um, So in a way, I'm kind of continuing that that same process, but just independently.
0: And I think that's increasingly common, right? That people will get a PhD and then they'll use those skills to do a different related type of work, not necessarily kind of doing the traditional hunt for that tenure track position, right?
1: Yeah, I think it has to be that way, because right. there are so many PhDs and so few tenure track positions. <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, it's um, not a choice that they've all decided to make all at the right. same
1: time. It yeah. isn't, it isn't. I mean, for me, it felt like a choice and a rejection, but also, you know, because I could have spent the next several years, you know, bopping from fellowship to fellowship and, you know, trying to get that, um, that tenure track dream. But instead, I just I was like, no, I want to live where I want to live. And I want to kind of you know, figure it out myself. Um, But yeah, I think I do think that is more common. And I think that there are skills that you get doing a PhD that apply far beyond uh, just academic teaching. Um, At least that's what I've found to be true. Mm -hmm.
0: One other aspect of the book that I'd love to touch on briefly is chronic illness, which is something that you suffer from and that McCullers also suffered from. And it's something that it seemed like that was another aspect of her life that you felt had been misrepresented in previous attempts to kind of write about her. Um, Could you talk a bit about what your own illness kind of allowed you to see in in the archives of McCullers?
1: Sure. I I was kind of in the process of being diagnosed with uh, a chronic illness called POTS, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, um, basically because I was fainting a lot. Um, And because the illness that I have, uh, some of the main symptoms are exhaustion or fainting and weakness, um, I was really able to sort of see and read through the lines uh, when Carson is talking about her illness or when others are talking about her behavior and see someone who is struggling against sort of the limits of their own body. Um, And that's something that I was really feeling strongly about my own body at the time that I was writing, even at the time that I was staying in Carson's house, for example, um, really feeling those limitations. Um, in terms of her illness being misunderstood, I think you know, she definitely drank heavily for much of her life, and that's well-documented. Um, and I think her, her own illness and, and the various ways in which she suffered, especially after her first stroke, Um, were we're just not very well understood by people, by doctors at the time. She was misdiagnosed a number of times. And a lot of people, Truman Capote being one of them, uh, really liked to just say, oh, I think she's kind of like hamming it up to get attention or I think she's faking it or she's just a drunk. You know, like the things that people would say about her were pretty harsh um, and were really, you know, failures, I think, to understand what was going on and what she was experiencing um, physically and sort of the limitations of her body. Um, and then I, I think that is the kind of points to some larger issues around the way um, women's health in general has been kind of like understood by the medical establishment, which is something else I've sort of written a bit about. Um, and definitely something that Carson was up against where doctors would kind of Maybe suggest that the stroke was actually just because she was emotionally upset, um, you know, and things like that. And so, like, then her, like, partial paralysis of her body was somehow psychosomatic. <laughs> like, it just makes no yeah. sense. But it's also really common in the way that women's illnesses have been treated throughout history and still to this day. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And yeah, that's not really a thing. People don't just make up illnesses to get attention. There are much easier uh, and more effective ways to get attention than that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. You know. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, this is a very small detail in your book, but I wanted to ask you about it. You write that you wrote your master's thesis on David Foster Wallace, um, who's about as different a writer from McCullers as I can imagine. Um, was there a connection between these two writers in your mind at all? Or was it more like, well, I'm done with that. Let me do something completely different.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I, the connection for sure is the Harry Ransom Center. And I mm-hmm. was um, one of the reasons I, I got that internship was because I wanted to research in the Wallace archive and collection. And a lot of the kind of first months of my internship, I spent just standing in front of the um, shelves of his personal library, which the Ransom Center has, and kind of just picking books off the shelf. Uh, Off his shelf and kind of looking at his annotations, understanding what he was reading. But I think there is certainly a connection between the two writers for me, um, because of the way they write about place. Um, So my work on Wallace at the time was focused on his version of the Midwest. And I was looking at his... Hmm drafts of his last book, The Pale King, um, and sort of its depiction of Peoria and of rural Illinois. Um, And Carson, of course, is writing about the South and writing about small towns in the South, a very different place. But I think that the way both writers understand uh, how place affects your psyche, I think those are like two big overlaps between them. Um, And then I think they both also have that sense of humor, but also sense of, you know, the true darkness of life of existence. So yeah, I think I think there's kind of a lot of weird overlaps there. But I don't know if anyone else would see that but me because I was kind Mm of so immersed in both of their works at different times in my life. And
0: finally, you've mentioned that you have uh, books around you right now that are related to your next project. Um Are you far enough along in that project that you'd be comfortable telling us a bit about what that is?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I'm working on two very different things right now. One is a collection of essays um, that are based in New Mexico, um, and that kind of deal with a range of subjects from wellness and healing um to toxicity and kind of the nuclear history of the Manhattan Project and the Trinity Test in New Mexico um, to kind of more like broad uh, essays about uh, materialism and consumer culture. The last one's about my kind of decision not to get married and not to have kids. So they, they range over a number of topics centered kind of in my life in, in New Mexico Um, And the other project is a novel that I started during the uh, lockdown in the spring, so it may never go anywhere, (laughs) but we'll see. Uh, (laughs) I never thought of myself as a fiction writer, but this was kind of the thing that I was able to wrap my mind around um, when my research seemed a little bit um, difficult or distant or hard to kind of grasp. So I started this other other project It's kind of maybe autofiction, we'll see. We'll see what happens.
0: <laughs> this present book is not not autofiction. It definitely has some of that DNA in it.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think that uh, with the McCullers project I wanted to see sort of how using just actual, you know, factual information, you know, how mm-hmm. how far can you tweak that form? How far can you take nonfiction? And so now I think I'm starting to think about it from the other direction. How how much of the real world how much of your life can you put into something and then call it fiction so we'll yeah we'll see how that all works out
0: well i'm i'm excited to read those whenever they do come out uh, jen chaplin thanks so much for uh being on new books and performing arts i really enjoyed uh, my autobiography of carson mccullers i i can't speak highly enough of it
1: oh thank you so much and thank you for having me really really nice to chat with you